Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we sit down with Rick Ruoff, who's been guiding in the Keys, Montana, and around the world for over 50 years. Rick and I shared a meal together with some friends, and I found myself captivated by his ability to tell stories and various insight that he's picked up over the years. Rick began guiding in 1969 as a college student in Miami, who would drive down to the Keys and work out of Bud and Mary's Marina. Rick was young, honest, and humble, and over time built up a great group of clients that Rick now considers friends. Rick claims that he's a biologist by training and a guide by default. In this podcast, he shares some great insights on scouting areas, dealing with change, remaining humble, and even shares in a hilarious story about fly fishing for bonefish in Venezuela. I hope that you enjoy this time together. This is The Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might, definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, Rick, thanks for joining us on the podcast today and sharing a meal with us. Can Thank you for cooking the meal. Well, I cooked part of it. But. It was the best part of it. <laughs> um, before we get into, I have all sorts of questions I want to ask, but before we get into that, I love to hear about how people first got into guiding. Well, she's uh, a multitude of reasons, but I, I kind of backed into it. So I had a, uh, a degree in biology with a, um, a minor in English, a minor in chemistry, a minor in law uh, courses. I took all kinds of stuff. And uh, when I graduated, I, was, uh, I, I got accepted to uh, dental school, vet school, and business grad school. And I thought, I don't have any idea what I want to do. So at that time, I thought, well, this is, if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to become homeless, live under a bridge, and then jump off of it. <laughs> and I had no idea. And at the time, I had a captain's license because during the, the weekends when I was in college, I used to be a mate on a charter boat, then the captain in Miami. And, and the uh, captain of the boat asked me to get my captain's license so I could run the boat if he couldn't. So I had my captain's license, which is a six-pack license. And so this is like in the, in the um, 69, I guess. And so I, um, I had a license, and I, I was on an honors program at the university. So I took every Tuesday off. I could schedule my own classes. And I took every Tuesday off, and I would drive down to the Keys and fish with a guy who was the manager of Bud and Mary's. His name was Roland Reams, and he was a great friend of mine. And we would go fishing, and then his wife would cook his dinner. And then I would drive back to Miami at 10 o'clock at night and go to class the next day. So when it came down to crunch time, when I was actually having to make a decision about what I was going to do the rest of my life, um, 
he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, Roland, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And he says, have you ever thought about guiding? And I thought, well, I've never thought about guiding, but I had, I had bought a guide skiff from a, a, a guide that had pretty much beat the bottom out of it, and I completely rebuilt the boat. So I had a backcountry boat, and he said, well, you're pretty good. Why don't you think about that? And, and this was Bud and Mary's Marina in Isla Mirada. Mm-hmm. And this was in, uh, so this was 1970, this all event happened. And he said, um, we could talk about getting you in the marina. So I remember the fellow that owned the marina at the time was named Jack Kurtz and a wonderful man and a good friend in the, in the future. And he interviewed me, and he says, well, what do you have to offer to me? You know, if I bring you in as a guide here, we have a total professional guide staff of all these old crusty guides, Jimmy Albright and Hank Brown and Billy Knowles and Bob Reitman and all these guys that were legends and somewhat cranky. And, um, and uh, he said, uh, I'll, I'll, what can you bring to the game for me? And I said, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I'll do the very best I can do every day. I, I just I don't know what I can bring to you that, I, that these guys couldn't. I, nothing, you know. He said, I like your honesty, Rick. I'll, I'll put you in. So the deal was, in 1970, the guide fee was $35 a day. And I, I thought to myself, and I, I have this little pink piece of paper. I have it to this day. Then I figured out that if I could make $3,000, I could make it. I could make it if I could make $3,000 in a year. So um, I became a guide at Bud Mary's, and he mm. told me, he said, you're the last man on the totem pole. Every guide has to be booked before I give you a trip. And, of course, I had no clients because who in the hell knew what I was uh, other than some kid with a boat. So anyway, I got a few clients, and at the time, there was no fly fishing to speak of um, for bonefish, mainly just tarpon fishing with fly, and not many guys doing that. And fly fishing was a passion of mine. But I didn't have any clients who would fly fish. I, mm-hmm. I, I got people that would walk on and want to catch a bonefish with a shrimp or a redfish or a snook or a tarpon with bait. So I had one man who <laughs> was my hero. He was a gentleman from Miami Beach. He was a much older guy, and he fished with a fly rod, and I would parade him up and down the dock before I'd get in the boat. I'd say, Harold, let's go over here. Let's go over here, and I'd be carrying his fly rod to prove to these guys that I actually had a fly fisherman. Mm-hmm. And he would fish only. He would not fish with a shock leader. We only fish for tarpon and redfish. If he hooked a tarpon, he wanted to break it off immediately. And he was my absolute hero. He's my introduction to guiding a fly fisherman. But that, I, I kind of backed into guiding. Huh. And, and, you know, that was, uh, well, exactly 50 years ago to the day. And I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. How did you get into fly fishing? I, I tell you how I got into fly fishing, and I backed into that. I seem to back into a lot of things. But, but there was a man that had a television show named Gad About Gaddis in, in the 60s. And Gad About Gaddis was my absolute TV hero. I mean, some guys had sports heroes. I had Gad About Gaddis. And he had an airplane. But most importantly, he fly fished. And my dad didn't fly fish. Nobody I knew fly fished. I didn't have any idea. But I would watch him, and it was beautiful. And I, to this day, I call fly fishing art in the air because a fly line is art in the air. And so... Um, I would watch this on TV and his kind of his thing was fly fishing with popping bugs. And it was like, it just set my hair on fire. And so I couldn't believe that this, all this stuff could happen with a fly rod. So I saved up all my money and I bought a, I still have it, uh, Abu Garcia 
Conlon rod and a Perrine automatic fly reel and a level fly rod, a level fly line rather. And I taught myself to fly fish. Well, I was abysmal. I had no lessons. And the, the more frustrated I got, the faster I went, the less it would go. And it was so horrible. I remember I went out in a boat and I saw these big bass swimming around in this lake. And they were about 12 feet away. And I couldn't get anywhere near them. And I got so upset and mad and frustrated, I threw the rod at them. Now, this is the rod I saved all my money. And the minute I, it left my hands sailing toward the bass, I went, oh, no. So I spent two hours dredging it up with my spinning rod, and I finally got it back. And I, Nobody saw me do it, but to this day, I'm still embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured I needed some help. So I was kind of self-taught for many years. And my first official lesson, I was in college, and Lefty Cray came into the shop. I was helping uh, sweep the floor in, and he says... Uh, Son, would you like to cast a rod with me? And I said, oh, yes, sir, I sure would. And I went out, and he says, well, you're not bad, but you got a hitch in your giddy-up. And uh, so what that meant in, in leftyisms is I had a double stop in my back cast. So he straightened me out, and, that, and then suddenly I became an okay fly fisherman. Not that I'm good. I just was okay. Wow. Still am. And it's funny to hear you talk about there not being very many saltwater fly fishing. No guys in the keys could you talk a little bit about how you watched that grow and evolve over the years oh it, it, it was amazing because you know when i started fly fishing uh it was all fiberglass there was no graphite of course and um but it was post bamboo you know the the original fly fishing was all bamboo rods and the, the orvis shooting star was the most popular rod of all and basically they were nine weights and um so a lot of these fish were caught with no drag reels with a Fluger Supreme, uh, or Fluger Medalist, rather, and a, a, a bamboo rod. So you're talking about these guys that were catching tarpon that were 40, 50, 60 pounds, mm. bonefish, you know, salmon, snook, you know, all kinds of fairly large game fish. So it took a great deal of skill to do it. And and then when, um, when I was in college, I, I had the good fortune to be Come good friends with a fellow that owned Seamaster, and he was kind of a, a hero to me. And I would every Wednesday I would sweep out his shop, and um, and and talk to him, and and would have dinner or lunch together, and uh, and he would make me a deal on fly reels. So I I got to learn what the best was, and and that's when fly fishing really started to take the turn up, is when Finor and Seamaster had reels with really good drags. And it was before graphite, but there was a rod called, uh, a very famous rod made by a scientific angler called a Great Equalizer, and it was a 12-weight. It was the biggest fly rod ever made. And it was a rod that was uh, very uh, uh, adept at catching big tarpon. And all the guides, the old guides to this day would know it, and all the young guides would never have heard of it. Hmm. It was an amazing tool. And when you had that with a, a reel with a cork drag, a, a really good reel, um, anything became possible. So suddenly all these in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, all these technologies came together. It was like monofilament with, with mm -hmm. uh, spinning, you know. Uh, a whole new line of technology took over, and it allowed this, these amazing catches. Hmm. And when you were in college, what particularly were you targeting? Oh, God. When I was in college, I was targeting anything that had fins on it. Okay. And um, uh, I would fish in the school lake, 
and I would time it to we would chum the tarpon up with uh, bread balls from the cafeteria and would get big schools of minnows eating the bread balls. And then the tarpon would come up and swallow the entire school of minnows. So then we would, once we had the tarpon kind of working the minnows, then we would just dump a fly in there and hold on. And so I always timed the... the, the, the fishing to the change of classes when all the co-eds would be walking past the lake. So the big trip was to try to catch a tarpon with all the co-eds walking by, and you're guaranteed to get a date. Yeah. What, what for you, do you feel like really drew you to guiding instead of doing some of the other options that you felt like you had in college? Well, I, I never felt it was going to be career. I always thought that I was going to make up my mind and become a real successful human being. And, uh, hadn't happened yet I guess but but the bottom line is I I got to know the guides and um, they didn't like me much because I was the only guy that went to college so my nickname was college boy and uh, and used in a not friendly fashion and um, but I realized how good these guys were what they did and I had a great deal of respect for them even if they didn't like me Mm -hmm. and so um, I realized that this was a real profession and so I just it was one of the things that you know when you're guiding when you're fishing you'll never know it all you can't know it all and I've been guiding 50 years and the one thing I proved to myself is I sure don't know it all Mm -hmm. and so the bottom line is I had a great deal of respect for these guys and I just kind of kept guiding and I kept thinking, Oh, I want to learn this and I want to learn that and I want to explore this and I want to explore that. So that's, it just kind of pulled me deeper and deeper into the web, Mm. which wasn't a bad thing. Earlier at dinner, you mentioned that you don't know very many people who've done a certain career for 50 years straight, right? Over the years, what has changed about you as a guide? Well, I, I, I realize this, that there are some of the guides now that are so good and young. And I thought to myself, these guys, they, they know how to use the technology. I mean, they're Google Earth. They're, they're uh, uh, cell phone literate. They're, they're literate in electronics communications. Um, they realize, uh, okay, there's uh, a bottom contour here because I saw it on my depth machine that I didn't know was there and tarpon swim that contour. I mean, they're very good at figuring things out better than, I mean, as Steve Huff, who's a contemporary, actually he's a little older and I'd like to point that out. (laughs) But, um, uh, as Steve said, when we started guiding, all you had to do is keep pulling and the fish would run into you. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many fish, and you didn't have to be good. And I wasn't good. I was never good. And I just I had the ability to stay at it harder and longer than a lot of people. And more fish ran into me as a result mm-hmm. of me just pulling. It wasn't like I was smarter or better. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a time for you that you thought about getting out of guiding or wanting to quit? Yeah, there was. It was 1997. Um, I had, uh, a lot of things going on in my life. I, I adopted my godson and, uh, I put him through school in Montana and, um, I, I was getting very frustrated with the keys. It was, it, there was a big influx of new guides and the new guides were looking me over binocularing where I was. And that was when GPS started to show up and, and my secret spots were becoming no secret and it was hurting me bad. And, and it was frustrating me a lot. And, and I'd, I'd get up in the morning, at, I'd leave the dock at 5.30 and, and run in the dark for 20 minutes and pull up to a place and be somebody there. Well, there hadn't been anybody there in 30 years. Mm-hmm. But 
suddenly there was somebody there. Then I'd go to spot number two in the dark, and there's somebody there, and I'm thinking, this is not okay. This mm-hmm. is not okay. These are I've never had a person in these places. So I got very frustrated, and I thought, I don't need this. I just don't need it. And I left the keys. And the, the one good thing I will say, I never said anything unkind. I hope not. And I didn't burn any bridges, but I was really angry. And I, I said, I don't need this. I'm done. I've had it. The keys are ruined. I'm out of here. So I drove to Montana to be with my godson. And I spent the entire winter with him and uh, going through school. And then when I came back in the spring to guide, uh, all these people that I had harbored these harsh feelings about, like, oh, they stole my spot and all these things. Um, I realized that they were good fathers and they were good husbands and they weren't evil people. They were nice people. They were just in my spot. And I thought, it's not their fault. It's my perception that's the problem here. Mm. And everybody was nice to me. Hey, Rick, how was your winter? Glad to have you back. How are things? What's going on? And I thought, oh, my God, they don't dislike me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is my problem, not their problem. So I, I taught myself in 1997 to fish where other people don't go. I knew where I could see 600 tarpon. I didn't want to go there because I'd see six other boats there. So I would go to places where I would see less fish. I was more efficient. And I would catch the same number of fish with less shots but nobody around. And to this day, my ultimate day, my ultimate goal is if I, if I can have a successful day and never see another boat, and I can still do it. And it, it, to me, it boggles me in this day and age that I can do that. With In Isla Mirada, there's 300 licensed guides. Hmm. What's with that? <laughs> you know, uh, When I started, there were 19 in the Upper Keys. Wow. So, big change. What are some other big changes that you've seen happen in the Keys? Over the years, well, the growth, of course, the growth, and then uh, as the water water quality is is decreased due to a number of man made and unman made things like environmental situations with, you know, warming water and uh, hurricanes and um, scouring and uh, perhaps septic pollution and a lot of things. So our bonefish got hurt really bad in a freeze. Uh, that was kind of the um, the the last the last man standing kind of thing. The fishing was going down until the freeze, and the freeze killed it. And so, as a result, we lost our our the world class bone fishing. The tarpon fishing was still fairly good because they're migratory; they they move in and move out. But a lot of the fishing became very cyclical, and then the water quality became a big issue. So, I've seen so many changes and and very few of them for the better Mm -hmm. but i will say i will say that during this quarantine if you will for the virus um with less people a shutdown in the keys of all business um um, it is amazing in the two months that i just spent uh during the shutdown um the fishing has become so good, and it's 1970 all over again. It, mm. it, it, nature, if you just give it a chance, just give it a chance, can mm-hmm. heal itself. It's yeah. shockingly good. And that kind of segues me to another question I had. So earlier you mentioned that you're a biologist by training, but right. a guide by default. Right. In what ways has your background in biology and what you studied influence the way that you guide well I, I can look I can look at the situation and I do I do think in a science kind of mentality where I'm looking I'm looking for certain things that I see scientifically and biologically in the water so why is this weed 
pattern, this weed growth uh, failing in this basin? What's the water quality there? Why are the tarpon not there? Why are the pinfish not there? Where do I see shrimp? Where do I not see shrimp? Um, what When I catch a fish and a fish throws up um, uh, their, their food that they had just eaten, um, what is that food? So I'm very dialed into the 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 biology of the situation more so than if I never had my education and and to me it's a real plus and and my clients all get a kick out of it uh, I have so many long-term clients that they realize when I'm starting to give them the Latin name for things they're not catching anything <laughs> take them a while to figure it out but yeah. they have figured me out keep them entertained oh yeah yeah I can I can give them Latin all day long yeah yeah so another question I kind of had was, you know, when you think about the evolution of the fishing industry and not just guiding, but angling in general with GPS, with right. all the different technologies, right. obviously there's tons of great things in that, but right. I also in this podcast, I've heard lots of negative things. I was right. wondering what things do you see from when you first started getting into guiding during that era that you wish were still around today, or you maybe feel like are missed today? Well, what what is missed today? The world's just going too fast on all levels. You know, whether you're, you know, uh, cooking or growing a garden or everything is at a faster pace, and and fishing the same way. I mean, boats are faster. Uh, you fish this place. Oh, I don't like it. You run twenty miles to another place. Well, that's because you're running at a in a boat that doing forty miles an hour. Well. Mm -hmm. We didn't run at 40 miles an hour in 1970. You know, we ran at 20 miles an hour. And you didn't need to, to make these big jumps. So there, there's so much of the stuff that we, we're just faster paced. And, oh, if this isn't good, then let's go here. And then, oh, that's not good. Instead of following your – when I was young and guiding in the beginning, I would have a sequence of following a tide pattern. And if this place wasn't happening yet, then I would go to where the tide was happening. And, if, and I would do kind of work a tide sequence, not so much run from place to place to place. Hmm. Are there other things, too, that you feel like when you look at young guides that, that you feel like maybe they're missing that when you first started? Well, what I see is this, um, um, I, I just want to say, an ego-driven situation where you have to post. I, I, I am not a Facebook guy. Um, anybody that knows me well aware of that. Uh, I'm not an Instagram guy. I'm not a whatever guy. I'm not an internet guy. And uh, I have a flip phone for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so you, this is kind of the, uh, the electronic age of fishing where you, you go out and you post pictures of fish that you catch every day i wouldn't think of that i would lie to my mother about where i caught a fish mm. and all these guys are putting pictures out there that if you're really good and you know what you're looking at you can tell me i could show you what island that picture was taken next mm. to and so uh, it, it, you you're you're vying for you're vying for your reputation you're vying for business and you're 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 trying to create a cre you're trying to create a reputation based on how good you are not by what your clients say, but what you post. Hmm. Well, I'm not about that. I, uh, it's not an ego-driven thing. I mean, to me, fishing is a solitary, you and another person or two people in your boat or whatever you're doing, you're not out there to be in a crowd. You're there to be alone. And fishing is not a group event. To me, what I do, flats fishing, it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. You and me and a fish, a hmm. fish. 
one at a time. And I don't need to catch 700 to talk about. I need to catch one quality fish, and then we'll catch another quality fish, and we that may be it. But we're going to have a quality experience, not a numbers experience. And to me, it's become you know every fisherman goes through the thing with first it's numbers and it's size and it's size and numbers and then it's quality well right now it, it's everything all the above all at once and it's too much and to me we we ought to focus on the quality of the experience of why we are there and we are there not to rack up numbers we are there to be connected to nature mm. what does connected to nature look like connected to nature to me is being quiet and reverent and and i'm not a church-going guy and um i do say this when i am in a boat and when i'm in nature when i'm in montana on a stream when i am in arizona in a mountain uh when i am in florida on a flat i am in church Hmm. so i'm in church a lot Mm -hmm. when did you make the transition into also adding montana into your regular well i i had a good friend that moved to um, wyoming in 1972 and he invited me to come out to see him and i hadn't been in in the west since i was a little boy with my mom and dad taking me on a tour of the national parks i was maybe 12 and so i um I jumped at the chance, and even further, I had a girlfriend in Alaska, so she said, oh, you need to come to Alaska. So I thought, well, Wyoming's right in the way to Alaska, so of course I'll do that. So I went to Wyoming, spent two weeks, went to Alaska, spent a couple months, and then when I left Alaska, I flew back to uh, Seattle, and I got thinking about Wyoming, so I canceled my plane ticket and hitchhiked to Wyoming and spent another three weeks, Hmm. and then I really started liking Wyoming, and then I started going to Montana. And I started like in Montana too. So I ended up kind of in Montana. Was it easy to try to transition to getting clients in those places? Well, I guided for a while in Montana and Wyoming, but I, it, they were all my clients from Florida. So they would say, Rick, we'll come out and fish with you in Montana or Wyoming, which was a, a natural, you know, mm-hmm. because it, they were my friends. And so I just took them fishing. And I would, my goal was to provide the, the coolest, most groovy, no people experience I could so I would take them to all these remote places and would catch fish but it was I always try to be as pristine as I can Mm -hmm. what are some of the carryovers between the saltwater flats of the keys and a mountain stream well it's it's again you're in church you know and it's just a different looking church but but it's the quietude and and you know when you're when you're in the boat in Montana the river goes downhill you know, so you're being carried down through a, uh, an ecosystem. In Florida, you're either driving across it or a boat, or you're pushing with a push pole across it in the boat. And it, it, the Florida fishing is much more difficult to me because trout fishing, I always tell people, well, we know there's 35,200 trout per mile in this river. Well, they live between that bank and that bank. So you know you're fishing over hundreds of trout mm-hmm. per mile or thousands. And in the Keys, I could take you out in the day, we might see nothing, mm-hmm. you know, and you think, what? Aren't there fish here? Apparently not, <laughs> you know. So it's a very different thing. It, it, and and to me, the, the guiding in the key is, is a lot more technical than the, than, the, than the Western fishing, but it's nonetheless the same pristine experience. Mm-hmm. 
What, what things do you feel like that you learned in your experience in the Keys that helped you have success in Montana? Well, it's patience. You know, I mean, you, you learn to be a great observer. And, and, and when, you're, when you're in the Keys, there are a lot of things going on, mainly underwater, that you can't, like, plainly see. In a trout stream, you can see a hatch, you can see bugs, you can see fish rising to the bugs. Well, if I put a fly on that looks like that bug, I'll catch a fish. Very easy. But here, you know, the, the, the fish are on a tide, they're on a, 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 a migratory path, they're, they're on a, on a uh, uh, they move between two different, you know, salt water and fresh water, and where are they moving according to the tidal patterns mm-hmm. and the barometer, and it's very complicated. But you have to be a good observer and the better observer you are, the better fisherman you are. And when I think about just all the different scenarios that you've led trips in and you've Mm -hmm. guided in, you know, it takes a lot of, I guess, experience to be able to go somewhere new and scout it out and kind of put the pieces together. Could you talk me through a progression of how you would try to approach a new area and start to try to figure things out? Well, uh, I'll give you a good example. So I, um, uh, the the uh, Los Roques Islands in Venezuela, um, and nobody had ever fly fished there. And uh, I, I w- was hired by a company, uh, Frontiers Angling from uh, um, uh, Wexford, Pennsylvania. Uh, lovely people hired me to kind of be their, their bird dog guy going around looking for new fisheries. And so I went to uh, Venezuela, and I went, uh, I, I got... Um, a, a boat. Uh, I went to the head fisherman of this island on Gran Roque, and I, in my very feeble Spanish, asked him to take me to the the island chain, the uh, the archipelago, to fish for ratones, which are what bonefish are called in Venezuela, and uh, which happens to be the word rat. But they <laughs> they're named rats because they scurry around on the flat, not because they're it's derisive in any way. But so anyway, he, he took me out there, and we, we got to the flat. And on the way out, he had brought buckets and buckets of mahua, which are glass minnows, for bait. And he had hand lines. And that's what he wanted me to fish with, was hand lines, big spark plug sinkers, and gobs of minnows on a hook. And I told him, I said, oh, no, no, I'm going to fish with flies, moscas. <laughs> and he, uh, he couldn't believe it. So I showed him the boxes, and he'd, he'd, he'd open my fly boxes, and then he'd smell them. And he'd say, no, won't work. <laughs> and then he, I showed him the rod and the line, and he feels the line, and he feels the big fat line, the fly line, and he goes, good, bueno. And then I show him the leader, no, bueno, mm-hmm. no good couldn't catch a fish on that stuff so we pull this 35 foot lobster boat up to a flat and he throws the anchor out and I help him go out and set the anchor and while I'm setting the anchor I look over and there's like a few bonefish like 12 feet away from me and I go wow and so I quick reach up on the big boat grab my fly rod and just flip a six foot cast out with this little crazy charlie fly or something and it landed right in front of him and this fish took it and took off and I landed (laughs) it and then this other fish came over as I was landing that and was hovering around, and I threw it, unhooked the one and threw it back to the other and caught another one. So I caught two fish in like a minute, and he couldn't believe it. So he takes my fly, and he smells it, he smells it, and he looks at it, and he goes, no, no. And I <laughs> said, well, you saw me catch the fish, and you know whatever I said in Spanish, I don't even know what it turned into. But 
he was convinced after a lot of translation that I threw it up their nose holes <laughs> because they took That's it accurate. so fast. Yeah, and and anyway, it was it was pretty cute. So anyway, I I went all over those islands and and saw this incredible fishery that had never been fished with wow. a fly rod, hand lines only. Yeah. How, so how did you make the decision to? instead of just being kind of a year-round guide to, to go out. Has it, have you always been drawn to yeah. exploring? Oh, my God. Gad about Gaddis had an airplane, and, and I realized that Delta Airlines could fly me around the world, and I could go fishing. So so I, I was very fortunate that these lovely people with Frontier who said, Rick, uh, I think you ought to go to Brazil and look for tarpon. Mm-hmm. Rick, I think you ought to go to the Maldive Islands and look for bonefish, or I think you ought to go here or there, which I would happily did. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of a dream come true, mm-hmm. you know. And you talked about how when you first started guiding, the people who were fly fishing were predominantly focused on tarpon. Yeah. And then obviously bonefish became a huge sensation. Right, right. What are some of the, the key factors in trying to target bonefish with a fly? Well, you know, uh, again, it, it is a stealth situation. You're in shallow water. The fish are very observant. They're very aware. And your motions are wading, casting, retrieving, are very observ- you know, mm-hmm. very well observed by the fish. So you, the important thing is, is stealth, obviously, and then a pattern that they're going to like. The bonefish are not that critical about patterns. Mm-hmm. Anything shrimp-like will basically work. And um, I know that we try to overthink it, you know, because we try to come up with a new red hot fly. And we've been through all those gyrations where, oh, I've got it now. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is bonefish, the, the, the fly is not that important, but the presentation is. So that's, that's the whole thing is approaching a fish in a very stealthy and calculated way. You, 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 they're smarter than we are a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you like to predominantly wait for them. And- oh, it's the best. I mean, that's the most pure sport in the world. It, it's When you're on foot catching a fish on a fly rod where you're basically catching them with your hands, mm-hmm. um, it, it doesn't get any more pure. It's, it's primal and pure. Hmm. With traveling around for, with Frontiers, what was the most pristine place you, you felt like you got to experience? Well, I mean, I, I one place that was pristine for fishing was the Maldive Islands, and it's in the middle of the Indian Ocean, south of Sri Lanka. And I got there, and, and I realized that there were all these islands. I mean, there's like hundreds and hundreds of islands, and there were islands that were called fishermen islands where they had fishermen that that lived on the island of commercial fish, and then they had islands that were called tourist islands where they had hotels. There were not many of those. And the other islands were uninhabited, but they, you couldn't like get a boat and the, the water would be 3,000, 5,000 feet deep between these islands and it might be miles between the islands. And then there'd be beautiful flats and coral. And, and so there was no way to get around. So I found a guy that would rent me a windsurfer and I windsurfed across these channels that were like black blue water. And I had this, these wild sensations of like white sharks, like eyeballing me, like I was a popping cork up there with a, <laughs> with a surfboard. And I thought, Jesus. And I'd finally come up over the reef where it was like 20 feet deep again. I thought, Oh God, I made it. And then I would sail my little kite board up to the shore, jump off and wade around. And I got to tell you, it was the most pristine, magical place I've ever been. Bone fishing was terrible. <laughs> but it was the most magical place I've ever been. There were coconut trees leaning over the water. It was Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't much there for bonefish, I got to mm-hmm. tell you. So there you have it. 
with with all the traveling what brought you back to the keys what drew you back there well the keys is the best fishing in the world i mean they're they're when the keys are right and and it's a question of when and how but there's no better fish in the world i mean you can fish for a a hundred pound tarpon in three feet of water you can fish for a bonefish that's the biggest of the world and you can fish for a permit that's the smartest in the world and the biggest in the world so and you could go offshore and catch a sailfish you could go backcountry and catch a snook you could catch a tarp and you could get it's just an imagine imaginary place that all comes together and to me there's nothing like it and mm-hmm. and i i mean as as frustrating as the keys can be with traffic and people and guides and and GPSs and cell phones and Facebook and yada da da da, it's still magical. And I mean, you can have the best day you've ever had in your life to this day, hmm. to this day. So, if it's okay with you, I'd love to transition into just a little series of rapid fire questions. Shoot. They don't actually have to be rapid fire. Shoot them up. It's just my cover up for not having a great. <laughs> Good. I'll give you cover up answers. <laughs> uh, not having a great line of of connection between the two. Um, my first one is with your kind of experience as a guide and being able to have so many different relationships. I like to ask people this question, what makes a great guide? Uh, a great guide, most of all is an educator. Uh, to me, if, if somebody walks away from a day with me and hadn't learned something, uh, not that I'm the greatest teacher in the world, but I have a lot to give because of my background and my, my biology and my history. My my job is to educate people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just catching a fish. If my job was only to catch a fish and have some guy walk away with a nice fish, I wouldn't guide. I'd mm-hmm. be over it. But to me, if I can teach a guy how to make a cast that he doesn't know how, if I can teach him how to tie a fly that's better than what he's been using, if I can teach him how to fish to a fish that he doesn't know about, mm-hmm. uh, that's what it's all about. Education and patience, yelling and screaming, doesn't get it done. It's not okay in my book. And, and to me, and, and the other thing I am, I, I hope I'm a cheerleader in that I'm going to keep you up no matter how lousy the fishing is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to keep you up. I'm not going to say, Jesus, this is a miserable day and mm-hmm. you're a miserable caster. And this is just misery. You know, I'm not going to do that. I, I want to, my biggest fault I would say is I want every day to be the best day you've ever had in your life. And it's not possible every day as we all know, but I'm going to try. Mm. I'm going to try. That's good. Um, when you look back also over your career, what's the, what, what are some of the mistakes that you feel like you've made that you feel comfortable sharing that maybe people could learn from? Oh God, I've made every mistake you could possibly make. I mean, you know, it, it, it the biggest mistake is thinking, you know, more than, you know, and, and that's true for anything, whether you're driving a car, running a boat or being a fishing guide, um, n- believing, you know, more than, you know, so I was having a conversation with Bo Basso the other day and he was talking about how, you know, one of the privileges of being a guide is how you have all these different successful businessmen and women on the bow of your boat. And it's right. almost like going to school every day. When you oh. look back over the years, what are some of the lessons that your anglers have taught you? Well, I, I think that we are the luckiest people on the planet because we get to be with a host of, of very successful people. I mean, they're, they're making enough money to write us a check for our sorry services. But, um, they're they're captains of industry and politics and health and uh, everything you can imagine so to me 
the, I, I, the common denominator I found in, in most really successful people is an optimism that they're not negative people and um, they listen. And um, so if they can educate me about life and I can educate them about fishing, we're, we got a deal. Hmm. We got a deal. When you kind of went through that season where you were traveling around the world with frontiers and you kind of came back to the Keys and became more based out of there again, what was the biggest lesson that you took with you from that season? Well, I, I realized that I, I'd been to these <clears throat> magic places that there's no other way I could have gotten there. I mean, I couldn't have footed the bill for any of those travel trips for myself. And I realized there's always places I, I'm going to want to go and they're hard to get to and they're expensive. But, you know, I, I realized that, you know, you have, a, you have a fantasy in your head. I think every fisherman or hunter or outdoorsman has a fantasy in their head about this magic place, this magic time, this magic thing with a deer or a tarpon or a permit or a salmon or a trout. And whether they're in a pristine mountain lake or a, or a, a deer stand in Texas or wherever, they have a fantasy in their head that, that, that you always try to match and you may never even come close. Mm -hmm. And, and I had a lot of fantasies about what, what would it like to be in Brazil looking for tarpon in a remote river? Well, I've done it mm -hmm. and, and it's hard and it's dirty and it's sweaty and, and it, it it's not perfect and, mm -hmm. and life is not perfect. And, and when all these things can come together, you can have a magic experience at home where it comes together too. And, and so that's what I learned about going all these places. I mean, I satisfied a lot of my fantasies, you know, now as I'm been guiding for 50 years, I don't have this terrific urge to travel all over the world again. Mm -hmm. it, it's a kind of a, a lot of work mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm very happy going out in the Everglades and catching a snook on a fly rod and going home. Hmm. And you said some of your clients you've been fishing with for 49 years, yeah. almost the entirety of, of your career yeah. as a guide. Um, and I'm sure you've been able to see those people evolve and yeah. become better anglers. How, how do people grow? What are, what have been some of the trends that you notice that help people become better anglers? Well, I mean, that's kind of my job. And, um, so mainly the people I've fished with for 49 years, I'm fishing three or four generations of people. So I taught these kids that now have kids. <laughs> and so, you know, I taught them to fly fish or I taught them how to spin fish and caught them their first fish. And, and so, you know, that, that's my job. I mean, that's my job as an educator. So to me, I, I feel very lucky. Hmm. Um, my last question would just be, if we gave you a billboard entering mm -hmm. the keys and every angler had to see it, what would you put on that billboard? Tread lightly, leave a small footprint and love it. Hmm. That's good. Well, Rick, thank you so much for your time tonight, and I really appreciate you just giving us this, this kind of opportunity to sit down and talk with you. Thank you, buddy. I really very much enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy This is The Captain's Collective.